0: be seated, which you've already done, so that's awesome. Thank you very much for that. Uh, listen, my name is Phi Zayoub. If I haven't met you, I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, I'm looking forward to continuing worship with you as we look at the Word. Uh, let me just say this before I hop into this. Next Sunday is the Super Bowl. Uh, if you didn't know that, um, you must have kids or something. I don't know how you missed that, but next Sunday is the Super Bowl. Two things I want you to know as a church family. One is we're going to be doing a potluck meal after church next Sunday, so we can hang out, spend some time together. So that means we need, potluck means we need you to bring food, uh, good food and plenty of food so we can feed everyone. If you forget food, that's okay. We still want you to come. We'll feed you. Uh, we're doing that next Sunday. The other thing is this, Super Bowl, listen, that's a great time for you to hang out with your unsaved friends or your neighbors or other people in the church. I don't care which one you want to do, but, but don't miss the opportunity, uh, the fact that now's a great time for you to invite people over to your house, hang out. I don't want you to miss that that evening for that football game. All right, now having said all that, as, as I was thinking about the Super Bowl coming up, uh, a couple months ago, I read this book called The Captain Class. Uh, it was this book where this guy did a lot of research about what made winning teams. And he didn't want to just research teams that won once. He wanted to research dynasties. This guy was doing a research across, uh, as, as long as he could find record keeping, of the greatest teams of all time in all sports. I mean, the, the dude even looked at things like cricket and rugby. Who looks at cricket and rugby? Anyways, he was, he was totally obsessed with finding out teams, not that just won the championship once or twice, but over and over and over again for extended periods of time. And, and as I was reading that book, part of it was super boring, but he realized that captains, that the team captains, not the coaches, not all, not the talented players on the team. It was the captains that were on the field that looked to be the missing piece for creating dynasties. And, and one of the things I realized as I was reading this book and as I'm thinking about the Super Bowl this next Sunday is as a culture, I think many of us have a fascination with, with teams or groups or companies or people that seem to know how to get things done with excellence. Maybe you don't. Maybe, like, I don't care about that. But I think most of us would say, man, after the Super Bowl, whoever wins, there's going to be story after story after story of what made that MVP the MVP. What, how did that coach put together that team? What are, there's going to be stories, and people are going to ask all sorts of leadership questions for that. And, and it makes me ask this question. I don't know who you are and who you would love to spend time with, but, but is there someone that's always good at something that you would love to get a day with to pick their brain at how they do it? If it's football, maybe you want to know Tom Brady, or maybe you hate Tom Brady, and he's the last guy you would ever want to be in a room with. But find out how, how do you lead a championship team. Maybe, maybe for you it's Joanna Gaines. And you want to figure out how in the world that woman can like, redecorate houses and start a TV show and have however many kabillion kids they have and do a cooking show. You know that she's got a cooking show? I, even, I don't know who this woman is, but maybe for you it's Joanna Gaines. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. But, but here's why I ask that. I think sometimes we're curious about what's the secret sauce for their success. I mean, what is it that they do that makes things work so well? And, and this morning, we're actually going to consider a church that did just that. I, I believe we're going to consider a church when we look at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, We're going to see a church that, whether you know it or not, has impacted everyone in this room to this very day. We're going to look at the church that literally launched the missionary movement. We're going to see a church that took the gospel from the Jews to the ends of the earth. This small little ragtag band that said, here's what we're going to be about. We're going to be about taking the good news to every man, woman, and child in all of the known world. We're a chance to look at that church, and I think we actually get to peel back the curtain and see just a little bit of the inner workings of this church. And I, I was actually really excited about what I saw here. So let me review where we've been. We've been going through the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, uh, it's mainly been a Jewish movement. It's been really big in Jerusalem, and it's starting to spread out. Persecution has pushed this, this group out, but there was this one small little church where these people showed up. It's the city of Antioch. It's I believe it's the third or fourth largest city in the Roman world at that point. And some people showed up at the city of Antioch and they decided to do something that no one was really doing up to that point. They were going to take the gospel to non-Jews. There were no books. There were no strategies. There were no classes. They were just saying, listen, we think this is good news. We've heard rumors about Peter and Philip and that Ethiopian eunuch. What if we tried to actually go to people who were not like us, that knew nothing about the one true living God? What if... We decided to take the gospel to them. And next thing they know, not because they got it right, not because they had the perfect plan, but because God is strong and the gospel is good news, they took that to people and literally it started to explode in the city of Antioch. So much so they couldn't keep up with it. Jerusalem hears about it. They send Barnabas up there. Barnabas is like, this is this movement is sweet, dude. So I'm going to roll. He goes and grabs Saul, brings him. And now we've got this church taking off. They've got Saul and Barnabas. I mean, dude, their staff is loaded. And in Acts chapter 11, let me show you a little bit about the beginning of this church. This church is just brand new. Acts chapter 11, verse 27 says this. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. These, these prophets are people who, uh, they know the word, but they also, there's this movement of the spirit where he will give them words to say. It's a crazy thing that's happening in Acts. Verse 28, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine, and look at where this famine's going to happen, over all the world. It said this took place in the days of Claudius. So they're meeting, and all of a sudden one of them stands up and says, you know what, I feel like God just told me there's going to be a famine over the entire world. I don't, I don't understand what this meeting looks like. I don't know what I would do if one of you tried to stand up and do that right now. But, but look at what these disciples do. verse 29. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability. Now now I want to remind you, these are non-Jewish people. These are Gentiles. This church is all non-Jewish people. The early church in Israel isn't even sure if they like the Gentile Christians yet. They're, they're, They're happy the gospel's gone to them, but they're not sure they're fully part of God's people, and the Gentiles know that, Right? and here's their decision. There's a massive famine coming, and they decide that every one of them, according to their own ability, is going to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so by sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So let me just hit pause. Here's what stands out about this church to me right off the bat. They find out there's going to be a worldwide famine, and they decide that the first... The first thing they do not do is how do we increase our savings for our people here in Antioch? We're, we're in a massive city, way bigger than Jerusalem. Like we're gonna have way more poor people to care for. Our people have needs. Let's, let's get famine insurance, right? They, they don't go get famine insurance to make sure the church has a good budget that's going on. They, they, the very first thing they think about is not themselves. The very first people they think about are the people in Jerusalem and Judea. The the very first people that they say, you know who we really want to take care of? Those people that aren't sure we're fully accepted. Those people that look at us as outsiders, they're brothers and sisters. And the very first thing that these people in Antioch, this, this church that may only be two months old, they say, we want to go and send relief to the mothership back in Jerusalem, who we're not even sure they like us yet. Because that tells me something about this church. This church already, out of the gate, is, has a generous and loving heart for everyone. I mean, out of the gate. They're not doing this because they're saying, hey, we feel guilty they're not doing it out of some obligation to Jerusalem. They immediately, right out of the gate, have a heart that is generous and loving for other people and not just for themselves. I, I, I love this. That's exactly what they do. As a matter of fact, in chapter 12, verse 25, this is when all that stuff is happening with Peter in prison, it says this, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, when they'd completed their service, bring with them John, whose other name was Mark. So these people show up to Jerusalem, they give them all this money from this church, saying, there's a famine coming. We want you to use this however you see fit for all the people in your church, whoever's poor, whatever you need, take this money. It's a gift from, our, from the church in Antioch to you. It's, it's a phenomenal thing. Like I, I love this church, and I believe that it's that heart, that heart of generosity, that heart of love, that's going to cause this church to be the explosion for the gospel. And so here's what happens. Chapter 13, verse 1. So Barnabas and Saul are back in Antioch. Their, their two big dog leaders are back, and so now it's time to strategize. And look at what they do. Verse 1 says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. I, I think this is the group of elders who were leading it. And here's their names. You've got Barnabas. You've got Simeon, who's called Niger, You got Lucius of Cyrene, you got Manaan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Let me he gives us a list of leaders. He, these are the men who are leading the church. I'm not, I don't have time to talk about elders this morning, how churches in the New Testament were led by a group of elders. We'll talk about that later in the book of Acts. But let me lay out who these guys are. Barnabas, he's already the original OG of one of the disciples. Like this is the guy in earlier in Acts that sold a piece of land and gave all of it to the poor. Like, like Barnabas, this dude is a money ball. He's, he's a Jew from Crete is what we learn earlier. In Acts chapter 4, that his new name was Barnabas because he was so encouraging to the original apostles. This is Barnabas, the man, the myth, the legend. It's already a great start for their leaders. But then, very quickly, you see two things. You see Simeon, who's called Niger. Niger means black. In other words, here's Simeon, that means this is probably a guy that's somewhere from Africa, that's a part of the leadership of the original church. Then you also see Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in Libya that's in North Africa. Here's why I'm highlighting that right now. Out of the gate, I see that these are non-Jews that are leading this group. The other side note I want to make is that there is this, this uh, idea that's going around the church today that Christianity is a, white, a European white man's religion. And you need to know this, out of the gate, the leaders of the church that had major influence were Mediterranean and North, North African. This is not primarily a European white man's religion. This is a religion for all people that's led by all people, by the power of Jesus. And so anything that would twist the, the church to be that totally misunderstands what it is. So you've got these two guys, non-Jews, Simeon, Lucius, they're North African. and you've got this other dude, Manan, however you say his name, says he's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That word uh, lifelong friend can also be translated foster brother. So here's what that means. At some point in this young kid's life, he was kind of adopted by Herod into the family, honestly just to be a playmate for the other Herod. Now, I need you to think about this guy's upbringing. He grew up in a house of a man that had no problem commanding the murder of every two-year-old in a city. He grew up in the house with a man that was extremely immoral. And I'm not even going to get into the list of the stuff, but you need to think about the worst possible things. That's Herod. He grew up with a man that would, was always nervous that someone was trying to take away his authority, and he would even have his own children executed if he was afraid they were going after the throne. This, this guy, Manaan, however you say his name, listen, he did not have a good, clean, clean Christian, religious, stable household he grew up in. His upbringing was rough and unstable and dangerous and wild. Who knows the things that this young man saw growing up? And this guy that does not have pedigree, that does not have a clean upbringing, this man that's probably recently come to Christ in the last couple months, this guy that's, that's not a good, clean Jewish man, but he's something else This guy is already, because of the work of Jesus, he's already in leadership in the early church. And then the very next guy that you see is Saul. Now Saul's a Jew, he's a good Pharisee, but he's also a guy that hated the church so much he was murdering Christians and having them arrested until he met Jesus. Here's what I want you to hear. There is only one guy in this group of leaders that's good and clean and worthy to be pastor material. There's one that's been to seminary, his name's Saul, but that dude wrecked his life completely because he's a murderer. I'm telling you that the greatest movement of the gospel to the ends of the earth didn't start with the religious and the clean and the seminary trained. It started with the broken, the weak, the bad backgrounds, the The outsiders, the people who've wrecked their lives, but they met Jesus and He changed them. Listen, you need to hear this. The movement of God is not based on our pedigree, it's based on the work of Jesus in our hearts. There is no one in this room or in this city or in this country that has jacked things up so much. That the gospel is not strong enough to radically change you and use you in unbelievable ways for the kingdom. You're not that far gone. Your sin is not that strong. The awful household you grew up in, it's not stronger than the gospel of Jesus. But I want that to give you hope. Some of you here, you're wrapped up in bondage. You are handcuffed to your past, you're handcuffed to your shame and your guilt, and Jesus says he can set you free and use you in ways that would make people's jaw drop. It's good news, because what I don't need is more seminary people in the church. What we need is more people who have met Jesus and tasted the freedom that he gives. So this, this group, this group of men who probably ought not to be used by God they're the ones that are leading this little ragtag church of Gentiles. And look at what they do in verse 2. We get, a, we get a peek into their meetings. Verse 2, it says this. And here's what they're doing. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. I'm going to hit time out right there. You're like, man, are we going to literally go three words and you're going to stop every time? Yes. Okay, uh, we're only going to do three verses today, so nobody panic. L- listen, so, so while they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, I'm going to tell you right off the bat what I love about this. You are about to see the start of international missions. And the start of international missions is not happening in a room with a bunch of men who are acting like CEOs. There's not spreadsheets, there's not budget plans, there's not travel routes and maps of the world, there's not pins with the most strategic cities in Rome, there's no strategic plan, there's no guy that comes in with the vision statement like here's what we're gonna do. The start of the most powerful international movement ever is with a group of ragtag men who are in a room worshiping. They're getting together, and this group of elders that gets together to lead the church, what they do when they gather is they worship. They, they literally worship. They're primarily worshipers of Jesus. They're not visionaries. They're worshipers. They don't have a strategic plan. Their strategic plan is we worship first, Here's what I see in that. I, I believe that worship is the fuel of missions. There's a famous quote by a guy named John Piper. I think I've read it to you before. It's in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And his opening paragraph in the book says this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Reaching people is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't worship is ultimate not missions because God is ultimate not man later on the next paragraph he says this it's the goal of missions worship worship is the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring nations into the white hot enjoyment of God's glory the goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God he, that's big fancy words to say this here's what we want We want every person to meet and know and worship Jesus. Our goal in in missions is to help you encounter the living God and worship him. Missions is about worship. And and here's, here's some implications for you. I think right here at the very start of this movement, we find a group that start with worship and fasting. And I believe that this is true. A church that is stagnant in worship will always be stagnant in missions. You don't love and adore and worship Jesus. Your heart doesn't burn for him. You will never, you will never be able to step out into the mission. The heart of it is passionate worship of God for who he is. It's a hunger for him and a longing for him. And this is important to us because I do not want a church to try to reach out and begin to engage their neighbors and the mission if we don't have a heart of worship. Our heart's got to burn for him. That has to be the thing that is driving us out, this unbelievable love and adoration for him. I'm just telling you, you cannot survive mission without worship. You you can't make it. Listen, some of y'all, I get super concerned. We've got a school here. I get super concerned that I've got staff that are pouring themselves out for students and family to the point of exhaustion. Exhaustion. And they're gonna shipwreck their faith because worship is not happening in their heart. It'll ruin you. It'll wreck you. It'll suck you dry and you'll have nothing left to give. You wanna work at a church and be on staff at a church and be in the ministry? If you do it without worship, you won't make it. And church, God can call people to the nations out of this church. He can call you to reach your neighbors and your coworkers. And if worship is not burning in our hearts, we will shipwreck ourselves. The start and the fuel of missions is worship. It cannot be fueled by guilt. It can't. I can give a drive-by guilting every single Sunday. I can give the list and names of people far from God who may, name, who may live in countries and they will never hear, even hear the gospel. I can tell you about how hot and miserable hell is. I can tell you about the only hope is that people will go from the church and that guilt will never sustain you in the mission. When, when all of a sudden you have to endure through suffering of what it costs you to the Gospels to the ends of the earth, guilt won't sustain you. I'm, I'm telling you right now, inviting your unsafe friends over for dinner, you may do that once out of guilt. You won't do it over and over and over and over and over again. You'll bail. Listen, it can't be fueled by guilt. It can't be fueled by obligation, it's not going to sustain you. Obligation will not get to you through the dryness you have before the harvest. I'm just telling you, you want to engage in the mission of people far from God. And it may look like months or years or decades. Obligation doesn't sustain you through that while you wait for it. You know what it does? Worship. Adoration of a king that alone is worthy of worship. Loving him and adoring him and serving him. That is the only thing that will drive you through the dryness before the harvest. You know what else will not fuel missions? And this one's going to confuse you. Love for people. Love for people will never get you through the mission. It'll it'll get you to do missional things, but it'll never never drive you to the mission. Let me explain why. The, The moment you have to go to someone and say, for you to follow Jesus means it's going to cost you. The, the moment the, set, the cost of following Jesus looks like them losing their lives or losing their familyhood or losing their jobs. If you love people, if that's the drive, you won't call them to follow Jesus like that. I'm not saying love of people is bad. I'm saying it's not enough fuel to engage the mission. It is worship and worship of God alone. That will sustain us through the dryness. It, it will move us to love people, even their eternal souls. The only thing that is, will cause worship is worship of God. He alone is worthy. That's the only way for us to lean into mission. But, but even as I re- read that, I, I dug deep into that word worship. Now, now listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little Greek lingo. Is that okay? Okay. Okay, good, you, you nodded your head. Uh, I'm gonna say the words wrong, just make fun of me, like any of you know Greek, but I'm gonna do it anyways. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you I'm gonna say it wrong, all right? So the, the normal word in Greek for worship is proskenuo, and I think I just said that wrong, but uh, proskuneo, something like that, blah, blah, blah. I messed it up. But that's a normal word. It means, it means to fall down on your face. It means to praise. The idea of this form of worship is that you're, you're constantly seeing how big and great and awesome and majestic he is. And you're saying, you're holy, you're big, you're awesome, I love you. God, you are amazing. You blow my mind. It's constantly bowing down before him and telling him how great he is. It's that form of worship. It's the worship you think of when we normally are, are singing songs. Songs or are praising him. Uh, but this is a different word for worship. This word, which I'm going to butcher again, is leto. Let's call it leto, okay? I'm just going to call it that. This word is leto. I totally wrecked that thing. Uh, This word is a little bit different for worship. It's normally used. It used in several different ways, but the main use of it is when someone would go to worship God by bringing an offering to God, and they would bring this lamb or this dove. Let's just go with the lamb, and they would bring it to the priest. And they they don't kill the person. Worship doesn't kill the lamb. They don't cut it up. They don't put it on the altar. The priest does. And that action the priest is doing in that moment, that service that he's doing to help these people worship is is he's taking the lamb, that's that leto word. He's taking it, it's an act of service. He's killing the lamb as worship. He's cutting the lamb up as worship. He's putting the lamb on the altar as worship. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 uses that same exact word for worship that we see there in Acts. It says this, and every priest stands daily at his service. That's that Leto word. Or worship that you see in Acts chapter 13. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So, so that's the word that's translated worship in Acts 13. It's the idea of giving service for God in worship. So I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? I don't, I, I'm, does not matter to me? Here's the verse that helped me kind of unlock what I think is happening there in Acts 13. Romans chapter 12. Probably a super famous verse for church people. It says this in verse 1. It's Paul talking to the church in Rome, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. But because God is merciful, I'm asking you to do this. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, your lato. It's not the right word, but that's the word. It's, that's the Greek word group that's in here. It's that leto, your act of worship. And, and as I read that, here's what I think is happening here in Romans chapter 12 and in Acts chapter 13. There's a form of worship that is not just telling God how great He is, there's a form of worship that's not just telling God how much I love Him, there's a form of worship. That's not talk, it's an offering up of all of myself. There's a form of worship that what it looks like is not just saying, God, we love you. It's saying, God, I am all yours. All of me, my energy, whatever you want. Use my energy for whatever you want. My time, my time is yours. Use that time for whatever you want. My money is yours. Use my money for whatever you want. My career is yours. Use my career for whatever you want. My family is yours. My home is yours. Everything that I have, everything that I am, all of it, I'm putting all of who I am on the altar and saying, you use me however you want. And here's the worship that I think is happening in Acts chapter 13 in that room. There's this group of men that are leading the church and they're worshiping God and they're saying, we are yours. Every single one of us here belong to you. Every single one of us are offering ourselves up to you to do whatever you want, whatever you call us to, all our money, everything, it's yours. This church is not ours. This church is yours. We're putting this church up to you saying, God, we are at your service. Do whatever you want with us. It's that moment of worship where they're putting themselves on the altar over and over and over again saying, I'm not my own. I'm not king. I'm not in charge. It doesn't belong to me. It all belongs to you and I am yours. And it's this moment of worship where I put it on the altar and say, listen, every day of the week and every hour of the day I give to you to use however you want. So let me ask, you ever worship him like that? Or does that scare the living snot out of you? To sit there and say, okay, okay God, uh, I, I mean, I can give you Sunday mornings. I, I can give you 15 minutes a day to read my Bible. But if I'm supposed to take all of who I am and offer it up to you to do whatever you want, I mean, what if? What if he says, that career, yeah, i got a plan for it. Okay, wait, hold on. God, I sacrificed a lot for this career. I went to school for it. I've been moving up in promotions. I got, I've got a plan for my career. <laughs> like, are you going to break this whole thing? What if he says you're home? Okay, and you, maybe I don't care about those because you hate your job and you hate your house. I don't know. Uh, what if he says, okay, that money, I've got a plan for it. And what if, what if he wants you to do something with money that's, spending more than you're comfortable spending. I mean, what if, oh no, I say, God, my family's yours, and what if he he actually takes me up on that and he sends my kids to God knows where or my grandkids to God knows where to the end of the earth? Am I, uh, okay, listen, God, I like my Christmas with my family. I like my family in my town with me. Like, you're not, like, I love serving you. I'll do whatever you want in the church. I'll teach whatever Sunday school. I'll be a deacon. I will serve my brains out of the church. I'll give 30% of my income. Don't send my kids overseas. Or maybe your fear of putting everything on the altar is, man, maybe your fear isn't he'd call your kids. Maybe your fear is he would call you. Listen, there is no mission. Unless there's worship that says, all of who I am and all that I have is constantly, repeatedly on the altar for you. I'm, I'm telling you, you won't reach your neighbors without putting yourself on the altar. You, you won't speak the gospel to your coworkers until you put yourself on the altar. You, we just won't. The start of engaging the mission is a heart that says, I am all yours. Do with me whatever you want, whenever you want, and I will follow you and do it. And I, and I understand why some of you are afraid. I listed all these things, and it just pushing buttons left and right. I, I want to help you work through that very quickly with just a few things. First of all, I want to ask you a few questions. I know you're afraid to put whatever fill in the blank is If you're afraid to put it on the altar, you you got that thing in your head you're afraid to put on the altar? Or things? Let me ask you a few questions. Number one, do you believe, do you really believe that God loves you and is trustworthy? You can actually trust him. Is the reason you're afraid to put it on the altar because you're afraid he's doing something mean to you? Uh, You're afraid he's not trustworthy. You're afraid that he's not loving, that he's using you like you're some type of, is that why you're afraid to put it on the altar? Listen, if you don't believe he's good and he's loving and he's trustworthy, I, I get that it's scary. I want to remind you of the good news of Jesus. He loved you and me so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross. That was his expression of, man, I love you. And I will do everything to connect you to me and provide you with eternal joy and riches. I think that's thats a pretty big expression of love. Listen, don't, don't doubt his love. Every time you doubt his love and trustworthiness, you look at the gospel. The other question is this. Is he your God or not? Maybe the thing for you is not that you question his love for you, you just don't like him meddling with your stuff. Listen, you, you need to hear me. The question for you, if that's the reason you want to put it on the altar, the question is very simply is he your God or is he a little hobby that you do on Sunday mornings? He will not be a hobby. <laughs> He is not tame and he will not sit quietly in your living room and behave nicely. He is the almighty king of the universe. And if he is not that, then he cannot save. If he's not your God, he's probably not your savior. But then there's a third thing. Maybe the thing for you is not, hey, I I trust him. I'm just afraid. Maybe for you, no, he's my God. I'm just still nervous. I just, I don't know how to do this. It terrifies me. I just, again, I'm going to give you the gospel here. I want you to know that Jesus did exactly that with the Father. He said, God said, I want to save those people. That means I want you to go down to that earth as a baby. And he's like, whatever you want. I mean, the Almighty creating the universe became a baby and had to endure poverty and humiliation. No one knew who he was. No one believed him. And then he went to the cross. And remember what he did the night before? Before he went to the cross, he said, God, I just, is there any other way? Not what I want, but what you want. He laid it all on the altar and said, God, I am all yours. listen, that is exactly how Jesus saved us. He offered himself fully and completely to God. And the Bible says he did it for the joy that was set before him. He looked out and said, God's going to do something. He's going to save people. He's going to make everything right and fix everything that's broken. And it may hurt like crazy, but my stance is that I am literally going to put all of who I am on the altar. I'm telling you that Jesus did this so that you and I can have the power to be able to do the same exact thing. Listen, it may be hard. I'm just telling you, Jesus can change you. And he's enabled you with the same spirit he had in that garden to give you and I that same spirit over and over and over again every single day to put ourselves on the altar. And look at what God does. Look at the second half of verse 2. These men do it, and they're fasting. They're serious about it. I'm not even going to eat because I just want to be all yours, God. And the Holy Spirit said, I don't know how this works, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So they're sitting there going, okay, whoa, 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 Barnabas and Saul? The two best preachers we've got in the entire church? Come on, like, I, and it's, I'm not sure what happened here. It, it doesn't look like Barnabas and Saul showed up and said, we think God wants us to do this. It looks like they're in the room saying, God, we're all yours. And probably one of the prophets stood up and said, God said it's supposed to be those two. And you're like, uh crazy guy, blew it again, he's wrecking staff meeting, I'm so tired of his outlandish ideas. Anybody but Saul and Barnabas. Dude, you're taking our two best leaders, you're taking the only two that know the Bible in any way, shape, and form out of our church. You're taking the two Jewish men that are apostle-level guys. Like, God, can we send some of the less gifted guys I mean, that Mannion guy, he's kind of rough. He probably would do better out with the Gentiles. Don't send Saul and Barnabas. Listen, they don't argue. They're not concerned that the church is not going to be okay. They take their most gifted leaders and they obey immediately. Verse three. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It's like, God wants it. Let's do it. You too, you're out. It's, it's time to go. And they're like, we're in. We're all in. And that right there, church, that moment, that time where they are praying and worshiping and offering themselves off to God, and He says, I want these two, and these two say yes, and the whole church says yes, they hit the road, that is the beginning of the spread that eventually gives us the gospel. And I'm telling you, if if this city is going to get the gospel, It's going to be because there's followers of Jesus who have missional worship just like that. And until we get that, we are not going to reach people with the gospel. Church, I want to take a moment here. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. I I want to take a moment to guide us in a time of prayer and a time of response to what God might have said to us. So we're going to take a moment. I'm going to lead us in a prayer of offering ourselves. I'm also going to give you some time for you to pray in response to God. So would you Bow your head and close your eyes. And, and right there, man, if there's something that you don't want to offer to Him and you felt God convict you of it, would you just take a moment and you, would you just say, God, I just, this is hard. I want you to know He understands. Remember, I mentioned Him in the garden. He understands how hard it is. I want you to ask Him to help. For some of you, the conviction was uh, not, hey man, God, I'm putting myself on the altar. For some of you, the conviction is it was clear to you that you need to actually encounter Jesus for the first time as your God and Savior. You may have been religious, you may have been good or not, but what you know right now is you need to place your trust in what Jesus did on the cross for you. I want to encourage you that right there in your seat. Would you take a moment and would you worship and adore God for actually sending his son to die on the cross for us? He actually did this. He put himself on the altar for you and I. Would you worship him right there in your seat for that? Would you just take a moment and would you put all of who you are on the altar for God as an act of worship? Heavenly Father, God, we're yours. We are yours and we are willingly and lovingly giving ourselves fully and wholly to you. God, some of us are afraid of that. Would you help us to trust and believe that you really love us? God, some of us, uh, we're just feeling resistant because we love some of that stuff. Would you just help us to taste how good you are? We, but God, all we want to do is we want to put ourselves in the altar. I, I put myself, we, are, we put ourselves as a people. God, you do whatever you want. Use us however you want. We want to worship you in that way. And God, I pray whether we see fruit or not, we would have joy in offering ourselves up to you over and over and over again. And I pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.